So we're going to read chapter 6 of Hebrews, verses 1 down through to verse number 8, which is the first section of this chapter. So let's just read this together. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. For it is impossible (coughs) for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance." seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now that's our reading and uh, we do trust God will bless it to us this evening. Now, just a a moment or two of recap, um, because not everyone has come with us through these studies to the point of chapter 6. And so let me just summarise very briefly the context, the big picture of the book and the part of it that we've arrived at. So this book is written primarily to those who have been saved from a Jewish background, although anyone with a knowledge of the Old Testament can find this book extremely instructive. And the book was written because there were people who had come to Christ leaving behind all of the aspects of Judaism that were very external, um, that had to do with the senses, that is, things that could be seen, touched, experienced in that way and heard. And they left all of that behind. They left behind the big temple building in the middle of Jerusalem with all the priestly function round about it and the physical sacrifices. And that is very appealing to be part of that big system. And they left that and they came to Christ who isn't even here. So they're trusting a person who's not even here. And all their hopes, all their aspirations, everything that they enjoyed in Judaism, they have left that behind and now they find it in Christ and yet he's not here. So this book is written to those who are beginning to falter, those who are beginning to be tempted to go back to what they left behind. And the book essentially is presenting the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ in himself, the one who died, was buried and rose again and ascended back to heaven, who presently is in heaven, he, that person, is the fulfillment of all of those things that they knew in Judaism, and he is sufficient in himself for their lives as Christians and their eternal security and blessing. So it is the superiority of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, that really is presented in this book. It is Christ above all things. Christ better than all things. And so the writer is running through the things that the Jewish people held dear the great people of Judaism, 
Moses and Joshua and Aaron, all of these great characters, they revered them. And the Lord Jesus is seen by this writer as being superior to all of them. So don't follow them, follow Christ. And then all of the sacrificial system, the offerings, the temple, all of the, 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 um, the calendar of Judaism with the festivals and so on, all of that is actually overshadowed and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and his finished work. And so he is superior, not only to the great people of Judaism, but to the great sacrificial system of Judaism. He's even superior to angels, by whom the covenant and the Ten Commandments came to the Old Testament people. They were the mediators of that. The Lord Jesus is superior to angels, and we've seen all of that. Now, the priesthood was very important to Jews. They were the people descended from Aaron, and you have the Levitical priesthood who functioned between God and them. Between the average person and God, there was this group of priests. And they took the sacrifices the people offered, and they presented them to God within the system that God provided in the Old Testament. So they represented the people before God. The prophets tended to represent God before the people and speak to the people for God. And these priests tended to represent the people before God that way. So the Lord Jesus in chapter 5 and now into chapter 6 is seen as being superior to all of those priests. So he is the one who is the mediator. He's the one who's between God and us. His sacrifice is the sacrifice that was offered once and for all. There's no need for this repetitive form of sacrificial system they had in the Old Testament. Now, in between all of that, there are warning sections. And we began a warning section uh, toward the end of chapter 5. And we're going to continue that into chapter 6. Because he doesn't just give lots and lots of information. He punctuates the information that he gives with warnings, with challenges. You see, whenever you receive information from God in his word, it's not simply that you keep getting information. It's that you should respond to the information you get. And so what he wants to do is to make sure, while he is teaching, that it's not just a stream of information without any impact. He wants impact. He wants response. He wants them to stop and think and consider. And that's what we should do. And so when we hear the word of God taught, when we're reading the Bible day by day, we should, as part of that process, be asking ourselves questions. We should be challenging ourselves. We should be stopping and pondering and thinking and taking the time to assess what impact is this having on me? What effect does this have on me? What relevance does this have for me? What do I need to change? What do I need to adjust? What can I learn from this that I can bring back to God in worship and adoration? Because sometimes the information you get from Scripture is actually information about God and it enables you to worship God and appreciate God and Christ to a greater degree. So it's a warning section here we've come to in chapter 6. Now, as sometimes we do at the Bible class, sometimes to get the meaning of the passage, we need to get into the detail of the language. Now, this section in chapter 6 
is one of the sections of the Bible that people debate and argue about. And we're going to see that really in context, there is no reason for debate and argument. It's only when you take it out of the context that I've just given to you that issues come up. And we'll identify one of these issues and see what the, the scriptures actually say. But when you come to this section, in verse number one, a man called Kenneth Woost, and if you're interested in Bible study, you should obtain his books, or if you don't want his literal books, you can always just get them online. The stuff's all online. Kenneth Woost, W-U-E-S-T. He, by the way, is who John MacArthur uses for his technical Greek stuff. Okay, so if you read John MacArthur and then you read Kenneth Woost, you'll see where John MacArthur gets his stuff. Always back to there. So Kenneth Woost is a Greek student and his material is very good. And he says this about this verse number one. He says, we come to a careful study of two Greek words translated in English as leaving and then let us go on. A correct understanding of these is absolutely essential to the proper understanding of the passage here at the beginning of chapter 6. So there are two words we need to dig into. And these two words are going to help us understand this whole section. So first of all, the word leaving. So that word leaving means to forsake. It means to put away. Uh, My definition I've got written down here says to let alone, to disregard, to put off. It's a total detachment. It is a stepping away from. It does not mean to build on top of something. It doesn't mean to be, excuse the pun, an extension. Let me just use that illustration. So we have an extension out there that's being built, but it's actually forming part of all of this. And this building is simply being extended out of there. That's not the idea of leaving here. It's not building on top of as part of adding something to. In fact, the expositor's Greek Testament translates this, let us abandon. Alford explains it in the words, leaving as behind and done with in order to go on to another thing. Now, this is important because what he's saying here is not the concept of progressing from a foundation onto a superstructure. In other words, from something that's basic onto something that is more complicated or or something that you graduate into once you've learned the kind of basics you can then graduate up a ladder of spiritual experience and spiritual uh, kind of wisdom that's not what he's saying so he's talking about the act of leaving something behind in order to progress now this is used in a very practical way in mark chapter 1 and verse 20 this idea and it says and this is the calling of the disciples and straightway he called them Now, here's the word here. And they left their father, Zebedee, terrible name, in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. They left. They they separated themselves, is the idea. So this whole section is not actually, okay, here I am as a Christian, and I've learned the basics of Christianity, so now I need to graduate onto kind of module two, or I need to go on to you know year three or something like that. I've got the basics, so I can leave them behind and I can go on to something bigger or better. It's not the idea at all. 
Actually, this is a truth that's often misunderstood, that Christians should never leave the basics. Never. We should never uh, be detached from the fundamental basics of Christianity. They remain essential for any Christian at any level of maturity. You never outgrow the basics of Christianity. You never outgrow the simplicity of what you learned when you came to Christ about the need for repentance of sin and the wonder of the cross and the simplicity of your childlike faith. You should never abandon that. Never leave that. In fact, the, the, the further we go away from that, the worse it is for us. So this is not an appeal in that way to leave behind the basics, the principles that we came to in salvation. So many scriptures teach us the opposite. For example, Galatians 1 verse 6, Paul marveled that the Christians in Galatia were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. They had left behind the basic teaching of Paul. Paul said, I can't believe you've left us all behind and you've gone on to some other gospel. So he says, there's the word leaving. Just put that in your mind and the concept of it. So he says, they need to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, what is that? The word Christ has a definite article before, which just means it's the Christ. It's the word anointed. It's the idea of Messiah. It's the New Testament word for Messiah. He's saying this in summary. Let's leave behind the pictures and types of the Old Testament and what they taught us and enter into the fullness of the New Testament gospel. Remember the context. Remember these people who are harking back to the Old Testament thing. Remember these people who are going back to that which appealed to the senses and that which was partial and that which was temporary. Animal sacrifices, a priesthood upon earth, a physical temple they went up to. The, the continual need to sacrifice. He's saying, listen, you need to leave that. You need to separate yourself from that. These are described as the principles, the basics, the beginnings of the doctrine of Christ. Bush gives an expanded translation of the verse and says this. Therefore, having put away once for all the beginning word of the Messiah, the first testament in animal blood, i.e. the mosaic economy, let us be carried along to that which is complete, the New Testament in Jesus' blood, not again laying down a foundation. And then he lists out six things about Old Testament foundation. We'll come to in a second. So you've got this idea. That's the immediate context. That's what he's speaking about. Now, if you don't get that context, this is confusing. So he says this. We need to press on. Here's our second word. Let us go on. Now, that idea is the idea of being born along. Now, we won't be as technical all tonight, but here's another wee technical thing. And um, I know that you are able to get this. Grammar. Now, have two ideas in relation to grammar for this point. Um, think about something that is active and think about something that is passive. So active is when you do it yourself. Passive is when it is done to you. 
Okay, so there's God is sitting there. Passive, if I come up and give him, a, I don't know, what would I give Gordon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, say I struck Gordon forcibly, for example. I'm not sure why I would do that. Um, he would be passive in that experience. It was done to him. But if he hit himself, then it would be kind of active. That's another issue. So the issue here is that this is not active, it's passive. So he's saying, you have not to bear yourself along. You have allowed to allow yourself to be borne along. Okay, when the passive voice is used, it speaks about someone or something working upon you as an outside source and also conveys the idea of your willingness to surrender to that. So he's saying to these people, allow yourself to be brought along to maturity. Let yourself be carried along. That word, by the way, is used in Acts 27 and verse 17 in relation to a ship which is borne along by the wind in a storm. So the wind acts upon the ship to move it in a direction. So what he's saying is just this, that you need to leave behind the things of Judaism, which were partial, which were not sufficient. They were the beginnings. They were the types, the shadows and pictures of Christ. You need to allow God, the Holy Spirit actually, to bear you along towards that which is complete, that which is mature, which is Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of all of that. That's the picture here in verse number one. Go on to full maturity. Now, this is right throughout this book. So, for example, in chapter seven and verse 11, he says, if perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there of another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek? He's basically saying, listen, if the Old Testament was sufficient, there would have been no need for the Lord Jesus to come. Why go back to that which was superseded by Christ? Because if that was fine, then you wouldn't have needed Christ to come. So he's saying, drop that, leave it, step away from it. And allow yourself to be brought along to perfection. Now then, if you see that structure, he's going to give six descriptions of the Old Testament and shows that they are insufficient. Just six statements. So six key things about the Old Testament which are contrasted to the New. First of all, not laying again the foundation, so this is the foundation, the Old Testament, of repentance from dead works. Here's the first thing. Now what is repentance from dead works? Well, remember when John the Baptist came? He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, actually. He was the, the forerunner of the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus said to about him, there's not a greater man that's lived here upon earth. John the Baptist preached repentance from dead works. He was preaching, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. But he didn't preach a message of faith. It was repentance, repentance, repentance. And that was the message of the Old Testament. Contrast that to the New Testament. It's not that repentance is missing. But there's more. So in Acts 20 verse 1, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks, 
repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the maturity. Here is the perfection. Here is, here is the full thing, not the foundation, not the partial, not the temporary. That was a message of repentance. Nowadays, in Christ, it is repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, secondly, and of faith toward God. Now, in the Old Testament, the message of faith as it existed was not faith in Christ. It was faith in God. When you come to the New Testament, Peter says in Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So repentance comes by faith in Christ and the two are brought together. So you have repentance from dead works, part of the foundation. You have faith toward God. You see, we don't preach a message of faith toward God in our New Testament context. You know, if, I, if I'm witnessing in the gospel, I'm not speaking about God in some generic sense of you need to trust God. It's a much more specific message than that. It's that you must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who died on the cross. That's the message of the New Testament. Thirdly, the doctrine of baptisms into verse 2. So not laying again the doctrine of baptisms. Now, having said, we're going to leave the technical stuff behind. Here's a Greek word for you. So you've had active and you've had passive and you've had some of Kenneth Wu's stuff. So here is this word, baptisms, which is an unfortunate translation. I don't actually have the ESV in front of me to know what they translate it as, but it should be translated as washings as opposed to baptisms. It's not the word baptizo that you hear preached so often when someone gets baptised. We all roll out the Greek word baptizo. It is a very similar word, baptismos, and it is used four times in the New Testament and in the three other occasions from this, it's all translated correctly as washings, referring to the ceremonial washings that were part and parcel of Judaism. Now, what was that all about? When you went into the Old Testament, you found this, there were rules and regulations... Not just about folk brushing their teeth and washing their hands and this kind of thing. There was ceremonial washings. The priests, when they were functioning, had to go through ceremonial cleansing. And the people had to go through ceremonial cleansing. Now, that didn't actually do anything, apart from wash the dirt off. There was a laver that was part and part of the tabernacle and that laver had water in it and the priests had to wash in the laver. It was symbolic. It was pointing forward to something else. It was pointing forward to what is taught in the New Testament as regeneration. The washing of regeneration is part of salvation. Except a man be born of water and of the spirit, the Lord Jesus taught in John chapter 3. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul taught this to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he said, don't go back to the ceremony of washing. 
In Christ, you've experienced the reality of the spiritual regeneration that that washing pictured. So don't go back to these things. So don't go back, number one, to the foundation of repentance from dead works. Don't go back to the foundation of faith toward God in that, um, no, I was going to say vague, it wasn't vague, but in that less specific manner. And don't go back to the doctrine of baptisms, or rather, washings. And then, he says, and of laying on of hands. Now, in the New Testament, you remember Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 were being commended to full-time missionary service. And they were selected from a group of men in Antioch to be sent out and do a specific task for the Lord, the first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And the assembly at Antioch wanted to show um, in a very graphic way that they were in full fellowship with these men. And so they physically laid hands on them. That's not the idea here. This laying on of hands goes back, and these Jews would know this, to part of the sacrificial process, particularly in relation to the Day of Atonement. When there was a ceremony whereby a priest, the high priest would put his hand physically on the head of the sacrifice. He laid his hand on it. It was symbolic. He was representing the nation of Israel and symbolically he placed his hand and his weight on the head of the animal, symbolically transferring the iniquities of the nation to that animal who would then carry it away as the scapegoat. That's what it's spoken about as the laying on of hands. It was identification with the sacrifice and identification with the sin. Well, he says, listen, you're not going to go back to that. Because you are now in Christ. You are intrinsically and inseparably associated with the reality that these animal sacrifices spoke about. And then he says this. Don't go back to the resurrection of the dead and the foundation of it. Now, the resurrection of the dead is a truth taught in the Old Testament. It's not simply a New Testament truth. For example, with the book of Job, he indicates that resurrection will involve a body. It will be physical resurrection. He says that in his flesh he would see God. And he says, he goes on to speak about that resurrection. The concept is there, but it's not defined. It's not specific. So you have a general idea about resurrection in the Old Testament. He says, listen, what is it in the New Testament? Well, it's very specific in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, for example, as Christians, we are looking for the Lord to return. We are looking for the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The dead in Christ shall rise first, the Bible says. We which are alive caught up, and so on. And then the Bible speaks about the sort of body we will have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The whole chapter is about resurrection. The doctrine of resurrection. So the New Testament teaching of resurrection is specific, it is detailed, and it gives us God's timings. Don't go back to the vague notion in the Old Testament when you've got the specifics in the New. And lastly, he says, to eternal judgment. Don't go back to the basics, the foundation of eternal judgment you had in the Old Testament. You see, judgment in the Old Testament, again, was quite vague. It wasn't specific. 
So you the concepts, Ecclesiastes 12 verse 4, God shall bring every secret thing to judgment, whether good or whether evil. And you had the, the basic idea of God judging sin and God blessing righteousness. When you come into the New Testament, it gets very specific. For example, we have the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the judgment seat of Christ. Where as believers, we will not be under the penal judgment of God, but under his assessment of our service. And then we have the whole court scene of heaven. We have the various stages of judgment. You've got the judgment of the living nations. You have the separation of the sheep and the goats. You have the ultimate judgment in the great white throne judgment. And you've got the consequences, the penal consequences of sin. You've got hell. And then ultimately you've got the lake of fire, which is the second death. So you don't need the vague notions in the Old Testament when you have the specific details in the New. I take it we've got that point because that is just a kind of repetition of the same basic idea, but he's saying, don't go back to the old. Understand this, that in Christ we have so much more in the new. Don't lay again that foundation. Then he brings his warning. Now, some people have problems with this. There's four down. (coughs) Excuse me. And speak about the possibility from this section of someone who is a Christian losing their salvation. So they take the verses out of context. I've tried to um, frame these verses in (coughs) and say this is spoken to Christians and you're in danger of losing your salvation. They will tell you, some people will tell you, and they will quote these verses to you. That you've tasted the good word of God as a Christian. You've you've tasted the powers of the world to come as a Christian. You could possibly fall away as a Christian. And if you fall away, you're done. It's impossible to renew you to repentance. I've heard that kind of stuff. It's scary. It's incorrect. It's false teaching. It's not true. When you become a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation. There are so many other scriptures that establish the truth of this. And these scriptures taken out of context, they cannot teach what folks say they teach, taken out of context. The teaching of scripture is that when you become a Christian, for example, God seals you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Upon believing, the Bible says, you belong to God. You cannot be lost. There are so many confirmations about the double clasp of deity and so on, and you're in the Father's hand, and you're in the Son, and so on, and you shall never perish, never perish. That's not what these verses are about. What are these verses about then? These verses are about these people from the Old Testament background who had associated with and heard all about this New Testament gospel. They were the same intellectually convinced Jews who were neglecting, and I'm quoting now, to come to Christ and were in great danger because if they succumbed to trust Christ and go back to the things of Judaism, they would be lost for good. 
Now, are there any such people around today? Well, in the specific context of this passage, no. In the specific context. Remember, this is a different stage of God's redemptive purposes when he was moving from something that was of God, Judaism, to another thing that was of God. So people were moving from what was of God and they were going into this new thing and there were many people who were finding it difficult to be persuaded that if this was of God, well, how could this be of God as well? And that moved from one to the other. Some were intellectually persuaded that Christ was the Messiah, but when it came to trust and repentance and faith, they went back. They went back. It's what you call an apostate. And these Jews were moving from God's foundation to the perfection in Christ. Now, the closest equivalent we have today is what we call false profession. It's the closest equivalent. It's not directly the same in context. Nowadays, we would need to challenge ourselves about false profession and take the principles of what is taught here and apply it to that. I was reading John Piper on this, and he applied it to himself in this way. And I thought it was quite powerful. He says, I conclude... If a person falls away and re-crucifies the Son of God, now you know them and I know them, someone who's called himself a Christian, someone who has appeared to be a Christian, someone who appears to have even lived as a Christian, but they have rejected Christ and their life no longer bears the slightest breath of God about it. John Piper says this, and I agree with him. Such a person, if they re-crucify the Son of God, take their stand with those who reject Christ and stood at the cross and crucified him. Such a person has never been justified. Such a person did not possess saving faith. He then challenges himself, and listen to this, if in the coming years I commit what he calls apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the word of God and the spirit of God and even the miracles of God. I have drunk of his word. The spirit of God did touch me. I've seen his miracles and I've been his instrument for a few, according to him. But if over the next 10 or 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually and lose interest in spiritual things, and becomes more fascinated with making money and writing Christless books. And I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that the children can fend for themselves and the Church of Christ is a drag and the incarnation is a myth and that there's one life to live so I'm going to eat, drink and be merry. If that happens, then know the truth of it. John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. His faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compliance with social pressure. His fatherhood was the outworking of natural instincts, not spiritual. His preaching was driven by the love of words and crowds. His writing was a love affair with fame. His praying was the deepest delusion of all, an attempt to get God to supply the resources of his vanity. That's really challenging. He's challenging himself. 
he ends his days away from the gospel, if he ends his days away from Christ, if he shows no inclination towards the spiritual, the challenge is, was it real at all? That's the challenge. I know we shy away from this, and I know you have in your mind people, and you don't like to come to this conclusion about them, or perhaps even about yourself. But that's the warning scripture brings. If there is no evidence of life, the possibility, I'm not saying it's always true, but the possibility is it's because there is no life. What a challenge. It's not that we should sit and make pronouncements about people and declare them to be this and declare them to be that. We need to challenge ourselves. And we need to be open to the possibility that those that we are perhaps complacent about because they profess faith as a child and there's been nothing, or they went on for a few years and there's been nothing. And they've always walked towards the world when they became an adult. And they've always been attracted to things that are anti-God and in the opposite direction from God. But we can't just cling on to this that they, they professed when they were young or there was some, some interest in spiritual things. What a warning. For these people that he's speaking about in context, he says this. It is impossible. Now, don't dilute that word. Some translators dilute it to use the word difficult. It's not the word difficult. It's the word impossible. To put the word difficult in there is a mistranslation. This word cannot be diluted. The same word is used in three different occasions in Hebrews, but it can only mean the word impossible. He says it is impossible for people who had the following five blessings to be renewed to repentance. So they've come to this point on the precipice, if you like. So many times, I don't have the references just at the forefront of my mind, but you read through the Gospels and it describes some people who came to the Lord and it says that they believed but it says ultimately that they crucified him. They ultimately turned on him. They ultimately hated him, the same people. You see, there is an intellectual ascent. There's a point you can get to where you're mentally in agreement with this, that you're persuaded, but your heart has not been stirred up and you've not repented of sin and you've not been broken down by God the Spirit and you have not repented and come in faith to Christ. And so you can get to that precipice and the cost is too much, the attraction is too great of the world and instead of stepping off, if you like, into the arms of Christ, you step back into the context of the world and you are never saved. But you were as close as ever you could be. That's what these Jews were like. And they, above all, had received such blessing, five blessings. Notice them. He says, it is impossible for those, number one, who were once enlightened. That is once for all enlightened. You see, as they listened to the message of Christ and of the apostles, the Spirit of God worked upon them. Don't we pray for this in our prayer meetings? That when the word of God is presented, that the spirit of God would be working? How else will someone be awakened to their need? How else will someone be convicted of their sin? It's not the flowery preaching or of the best of preachers that can do that. No preacher would stand and claim by their own efforts to be able, how often have you heard it, to cause an anxious thought. There's a great quote. It's true. You preach to your blue in the face. 
But if the Holy Spirit is not working, you can preach away. The Spirit of God works in salvation and stirs up and convicts of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. The Lord Jesus showed that true life and eternal life were found in the gospel. But not everyone who heard the gospel experienced the true eternal life, even though they were exposed to the source of light. They were enlightened. Matthew 4, verse 6, the people who sat in darkness saw a great light, but they didn't all get saved. John 1, verse 9, the Lord is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world, but not every man that cometh into the world gets saved. You see, not all of Galilee gets saved. Matthew 4, verse 16 refers to the, to the location. Not the whole world gets saved. Of course they don't. And those that saw Christ and those that were enlightened, those who saw his deeds, those who, who were in the, in the very glare of divine light, the light of the glorious gospel broke into their darkness. They could never be the same again because they had the foundation He says that's the first thing. They were enlightened. Secondly, they tasted of the heavenly gift. Now salvation is called a gift. Christ is called a gift. He's called the unspeakable gift in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15. And salvation is called the gift of God in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. Christ and salvation is God's gift. And some taste it. Taste it. What's this? Well, I think there's a great picture of it with the spies at Kadesh Barnea in the Old Testament. You remember the children of Israel come up to the land and they sent spies. I don't know if you still sing now, do you? Twelve men went to spy in Canaan, ten were bad. And then we used to sing that strange way where we, we missed out words and all we did was actions and grunts and things. But twelve men went to spy in Canaan, ten were bad, two were good. So the, uh, the spies went in and at Kadesh Barnea they came back out they actually brought some of the fruit of the land with them. So they tasted of the land, but they never went in to possess it. That is so true of some people who exist on the periphery of salvation and they taste, they taste. They taste some of the benefits of salvation by their associations and proximity to those who are saved, but they never go in for it themselves. He says, they taste of the heavenly gift. They were enlightened. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, the word partaker means association, not possession. It's an, it's an important distinction. And they shared in an association with the Spirit of God. That word is used to speak of fellow fishermen who shared in the fishing. In Luke chapter 5, verse 7, it's also used of Christ in relation to angels in Hebrews 1, verse 9, and it can be used of Christians as well. What he's speaking about here is not those who were indwelt by the Spirit of God, but those who had an association with the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit. So you get this idea of proximity, close proximity. They tasted the heavenly gift. They tasted the good word of God. And that is not the word logos, that's the word rima. Now, if you were to Google the word Rima, you should discount most of what you read in the first two or three pages of Google. Now, I know you're not going to go and do that, 
because it's all charismatic stuff and when you read it or don't read it um, I think it's Kenneth Hagen Ministries is priming the, 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 the teaching about Rima. They speak about Rima as a modern prophetic word from God. So they use that word Rima. As opposed to Logos, which they say is the word of God. So they distinguish between the two. That doesn't bear up, actually, if you do a word study. So forget all the ministries and what they say. If you get your Strong's Concordance out of the equivalent, you'll discover this. The word is used interchangeably to speak about God's delivered word, God's spoken word. <coughs> the emphasis in Rima is the utterance rather than Logos. Check it out for yourself. They had tasted the utterances of God, the spoken word of God, the very speeches concerning God and Christ. They had heard them. Hebrews 4 verse 2, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. There's a crucial difference. So they tasted the word of God. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the heavenly gift. They were enlightened. And lastly, they were made, sorry, they tasted the powers of the world to come, the age to come as the kingdom, by the way. It's a whole other subject. I'm going to deal with that at some point. I was just remembering at Linwood that it's a few years ago since I went through Revelation and it took us three years. Some of you old timers might remember doing that at the Bible class. It took us three years and went through the prophetic program. We might do that again sometime. The age to come is the kingdom and the power of the kingdom was miracle power. Miracle power. That's why the apostles, when they were demonstrating that this gospel was not different from God's kingdom, but part of God's kingdom, they established and affirmed their preaching by miracles in the early days of the book of Acts. So these people saw the apostles do signs and wonders, just as is going to be reproduced in a future day, by the way. So these people had all these blessings. This is what he says to them. If they shall fall away. To renew them, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. The word renew means restore. It means bring back to a condition. Can I suggest to you that having been at that precipice and stepped back, they'll never be at it again. Now there is a particular context I've tried to stress and emphasise in this passage. But there is also a principle, I think, that can be applied from that and we see so often with people. <coughs> that people come to a point of decision in their life in relation to the gospel. And there's not many people who visit that time and time again. Most people come to a critical point of decision and when they turn away, they're never back again. That's certainly been my experience of people. They make a decision and they don't revisit it. They step back. That's not to say that God cannot bring in our day, in our context, someone back to that point of decision, but it seems to me to be rare an experience. And so here is the challenge. Here is the warning. With all their blessings, they had the foundation. They were to go on to the mature Fulfillment of it in Christ. They were being warned. 
They had received so much, not just in terms of their historical foundation, but so many blessings as a group of people. The warning was this, not to go back. Not to go back. Why can't they be renewed? Because they crucify again. They take their stand with the other Jews. The context. Who said, away with him. We will not have this man to reign over us. They stand at the cross with their countrymen who said, his blood be upon us and our children. And they say, we're one of them who crucified Christ. Remember this though, the challenge for us as Gentiles in our day is just this. The Lord Jesus taught and scripture bears elsewhere to the truth that you're either for him or you're against him. You're either committed to him or you're not. There's no in between. There's no grey ground, middle ground. And he uses in verse 7 and 8 an illustration which is a simple illustration. And it's just this, the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh off upon it. That's God's grace. Call it the gospel. It rains upon the whole earth. Remember this, that the gospel is spread far and near and should be. It's our responsibility to bring the gospel to the people of our community, whatever our community is. That's our responsibility. Indiscriminately. Like rain falling in the earth. Everyone should hear it. The rain falls and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed. It's fruitful. It receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. You see, the effect of the rain upon the earth is determined by these two groups. And it's a picture of those who receive the gospel and some who step forward and some who step away. He says the end of one is blessing from God, the end of the other is burning. It's a very graphic picture. Sometimes we forget the seriousness of this. Forget the big issues that are at stake when the word of God is spoken. And although the specific context is not us as Christian moving from one stage of spiritual maturity to another in our day, that's not a strict context. The same principles apply for that in this respect. Very often we stand up on a it's not a very big precipice there, we stand up on a precipice of advancing in maturity and embracing uh, the, the revelation of God as we come into it and learn and moving on. So often we just turn away back. We turn away back. Because for us the cost is too great, and for us the attraction of the world is too great as well. <coughs> and so ends another warning section in Hebrews. Please don't allow people to tell you from this section that you can fall away as a Christian and be lost in your salvation. You can't. If you've trusted Christ as your saviour, you're secure and safe for all eternity. Come what may in time. May the Lord bless his word to us. Let's just pray.